0: Genesis 26, if you've got your Bible, let's open to Genesis 26. This is the only chapter in Genesis that is dedicated solely to Isaac and the events or certain events in his life. Before this, it's Abraham and Isaac, or it's Isaac and Jacob and Esau, or it's Isaac and Rebekah, but it's never just Isaac. Well, in this chapter, we're we're learning some things about Isaac. We get to see something about him uniquely. It's very interesting because we get several chapters, chapter 12 through 25 of the life of Abraham. And chapter 25, excluding chapter 26, but then 27 through 50, we're following Jacob. So you got Abraham, you got Jacob. Isaac's right in the middle, he gets one chapter to himself of events in his life. But but before we go there, let me ask you all a question. What do apples, chips, and peas have in common? Apples, chips, and peas. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He's a chip off the old block, and they're like two peas in a pod. We might also say they're cut of the same cloth, or even in older times, tarred with the same brush. That's, That's an old one. We declare things like, well, it runs in the family, he takes after his old man, or like father, like son. You know, you don't have to go far into adulthood to realize that you are your parents' kid, like it or not. The debate between genetic predisposition and social learning, it's ongoing. But whether our behaviors and our thoughts and our attitudes and even our physical selves, whether it's learned or inherited, we tend to carry forward a certain certain family traits, good or bad, good and bad. We find ourselves doing the very things that our parents did that we said we'd never do. And we find ourselves doing some of the things that they did that remind us of them, and we think, wow, my dad would have done that. Most of my humor is what my dad would have done. The puns and the corniness, he just loved that. He would just laugh at himself, and (laughs) I get it. Some will try to emulate fathers and mothers. Some spend a lifetime trying to extricate themselves from their parents. Emulate or extricate? That is the question. (laughs) In his most profound pre-incarnate self-description, God passed in front of Moses. And he said in Exodus chapter 34, verse six, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations i've always found that fascinating it is a an amazing statement that god makes self de- declaration but no he's not saying that he comes along and he punishes children and grandchildren for their father's sins that is not what he's saying says he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren. That is, he declares visitation. He comes back every generation to see, is this generation repeating the sins of the previous generation? Are the children repeating the sins of the father? Are the grandchildren repeating the sins of the grandfather and the, grand, and, and the father himself? He comes along to see, is the father being emulated or extricated? And with each and every visit, God offers every successive generation the same grace. Psalm 86, verse five, for you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness, grace, to all who call upon you. Romans 10, verse 12, Paul says, there's no distinction between Jew Jew. And Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Generation after generation, from grandparents to parents to children, and on we go, it is truly amazing how gracious God is and how he comes to each of us in our own generation to see are we emulating the righteousness? of our fathers, or are we emulating the sin? Are we extricating ourselves from the sin of our fathers or are we extricating their righteousness? Every generation has that choice. What's truly amazing to me is that God made this promise so long ago and yet he has never forgotten it. Psalm 105, verse eight says, he has remembered his covenant forever the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. And what's beautiful about this, and the Bible speaks of this often, this Abrahamic covenant that we've been looking at, that God declared that through Abraham all the nations on earth would be blessed, that he would make him a blessing, that this promise has rolled on ever since the days of Abraham 4,000 years ago. It continues to this very day. It is not stopped by the law. It precedes the law. It continues after the law. It is a covenant made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you and me, a promise of salvation. Why why did God do it that way? Well, it shows us faithfulness. It shows us that 4,000 years ago, he intended, and, and long before that, you know, before the creation of the world, He intended grace and mercy, opportunity to be forgiven, to literally be extricated from the sins of the fathers and yet to emulate the righteousness. What a marvelous God. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Abraham had eight sons through three women, but God confirmed his covenant through one son, through Isaac, And Genesis 26 drives that point home. That is the point. If you wonder, and and nothing's here by accident, in God's word and the way it's formed and put together, and if you wonder as you go through, why is there only one chapter to Isaac? And why are these stories in it? Why this particular section of scripture? Because this particular section of scripture drives home the point that God keeps his covenant. That this is the bridge I've referred to, at least in my own mind, I don't know if I've said this out loud, but I've thought of Isaac as the bridge between Abraham and Jacob. The the continuation, if you will. If he's valued in any way, it's that he is the bridge from Abraham to, to Jacob, even as Jesus is the bridge from us to the Father. And of course, you know Isaac portrays Jesus, as we saw the sacrifice on Mount Moriah, the offering of Isaac, the offering of an only son, a beloved son, well now Isaac gets this one chapter and reveals to us in this one chapter not only the ongoing covenant, but he reveals this as we will see, like father, like son. Isaac is his father's boy. And there is so much that is like Abraham. So verse one of chapter 26 says, now there was a famine in the land, and the writer points out, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. Do you remember what happened in the days of Abraham when there was famine? What Abraham did? He went to Egypt. He went down. God said, sojourn in the land. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. You'll be okay. But Abraham, as famine hits, still learning, still growing in faith, says, oh no, we, we we gotta answer this. We gotta do something. Let's head to Egypt. And so we see a very similar thing happening here. It says, so Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Abraham went down to Egypt. Where's Isaac headed? Egypt. He got as far as Gerar Gerar, on the border. He's on his way to Egypt, but this time, God pays a little visit. Verse two, the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. <laughs> Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. This is the first of just two visible appearances of God to Isaac. Remember the Bible says no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So if we see God who is unseeable, we're seeing Jesus. Jesus. The pre-incarnate God, the visible God. This is, this is Jesus pre-Jesus. Another pre-incarnate appearance. And he says, do not go down to Egypt. Why would he say that? Because he knows that's what Isaac is considering. He knows that's why Isaac is moving south. He knows that's why Isaac is in Gerar. And so we can understand that. That's what's going on in this guy's mind. In the Bible, Remember this always, that Egypt depicts the world. And as we come into Exodus, we'll talk a lot about that, a lot of comparisons that we can make between Egypt and the world. But if you think ahead to the night of Jesus' betrayal, do you know that Jesus warned that night against the world some 15 times? He mentions the world more than that, but he specifically makes warning against it In John chapter 14, verse 17, and then again in verse 19, twice he says the world will not see his spirit or him, but you will see him. The world's not gonna see me, can't see me. In John 14, 27, Jesus implicates the world as incapable of giving the kind of peace he gives. He says, not as the world gives do I give to you, meaning the world gives and takes back. Or the world gives something that's empty and meaningless, or so the world gives something that's not true, it's not false, it doesn't settle the heart. but Jesus Jesus gives so much more. The world can't give the kind of peace that Jesus gives. In John 14 verse 30. Jesus rules or, or sorry, he warns of the coming ruler of the world. He warns about that, the Antichrist. And Jesus in all of this, in John 14, talking to his disciples there in the upper room, there on the night of betrayal, he's not just stirring up an emotional resistance. The world's against you, therefore fight. It's not like Trump in the media. It's Jesus and the world calling it out for what it is. And in fact, what's amazing is in John 14, verse 30, Jesus says that his warnings are, so that the world may know that I love the Father And I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. Why? Because like Father, like Son. Like Father, like Son. Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. So understand that every, every time we make that comparison of Egypt to the world, and the negativity, and the sin, and the darkness of the world, it is that same world that Jesus came to save. That same world that Jesus came into. However, his warnings stand. In John 15, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Trust me, there's application to Genesis 26 here. Verse 28 of John 16, Jesus said, I came forth from the Father. I have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Back in verse 20 of of chapter 16, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep, you will lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. And at the end of this evening, at least at the end of the supper, Jesus says in verse 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Don't go down to Egypt. Don't put your trust in the world. Don't put your hope in the world. Don't put your faith in the world. You will not find your peace in the world. And so remarkably, at the beginning of chapter 26, God steps in to stop Isaac in his tracks so that he won't go down to the world. To keep him from following in his father's southern footsteps heading to Egypt. Verse three, the Lord says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and will give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Do verses three through five sound familiar to you? This is the Abrahamic covenant now restated for the first time solely to Isaac. As God has appeared to Isaac, he now reaffirms this covenant. So significant. So significant that it must be restated. God says it to Abraham multiple times. He's gonna say it twice in this chapter to Isaac. And then to Jacob, he will say it again multiple times. He restates the covenant. All three patriarchs will hear directly face-to-face from God as he confirms these things. This lineage is absolutely clear, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. By the way, if you note this, it includes five I wills, one by and one because. Look back at verse three again. I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. Who's gonna do it? I got it. I will do this. I love God's covenants because it's filled with I wills of God while I sit there going right on because I will do nothing but believe him to do as he wills. When we talk about in our lives being about the will of God, the will of God is perfect. The I wills of God are worth following because he's got it. He he will take care of it. All I do is follow him in all of his I wills. There's one by, at the end of verse four, he says, by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Well, we've seen that come to pass. The Jewish people have blessed this world immeasurably, continue to bless this world. Paul talks about that in Romans nine. All these great things that come through Israel and from Israel and by Israel. And by Israel, all the nations of the world will be blessed, but by Israel, the great big by is Jesus, who comes through Israel and therefore brings the greatest blessing, the blessing of salvation, Five I wills, one by and one because. Why are you gonna do this, Isaac might be thinking, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is pre-law, right? What in the world is God saying Abraham did? He kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. What was it that Abraham kept? What were the laws, the statutes, the commands that God gave? And I can think of at least six. Maybe you can find some others. Genesis chapter 12, verse one, God said, go forth, and Abraham went forth. Genesis chapter 12, verse two, God said, be you a blessing, and Abraham beat him a blessing. He he was a blessing. Genesis 13, 17, God said, walk about the land, and Abraham walked about the land. Genesis 17, 1, he said, walk before me and be blameless. Oh, by the way, side note, blameless, same word that's used of Jacob that we talked about on Sunday, tamim, tamim. God says to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. And in Genesis 25, 27, we see that Jacob was a blameless man, a tamim. Sunday, we talked about that. The NASB translates it, Jacob was a peaceful man. The King James translation says he was a plain man. Uh, The ESV says he was a quiet man. Everybody's missing it. It's the same word used of Noah, same word used of Job, same word used of Abraham as God says, I want you to be tamim, blameless. Like, well, like Peter would later say, like your heavenly father is blameless. Jesus would say, like your heavenly father is perfect, be you perfect, blameless. So you might wonder, well, okay, so which is it in the application? Is it that he was a peaceful man, a plain man, a quiet man, or a blameless man? Speaking of of Jacob, And I wanna share something with you that we talked about second service, but we didn't talk about this first service on Sunday. So you first service folks, let me catch you up to something. I thought it was really interesting. After second service was over, Camerley came up to me and she said, you were talking about that word tamim, which is translated peaceful for Jacob, but you were telling us it's blameless, blameless as Noah, Job, others, blameless. And she said, I kept thinking about that. Where have I heard that word? Where have I heard that word? tamim. Tamim. And she said, I, I remembered. Camerly, when she was in Israel for nine months living on a kibbutz, said she used to hear the mother of the house say often to the kids, Tamim, 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 which meant quiet down, be still. Shh, Tamim. I'm going to start using that at home. I like it. Tamim. Be quiet, be still, be, be at peace. And I thought, how beautiful is that? The same word that's translated blameless is peaceful and quiet because blamelessness yields peace. Righteousness yields quiet. Man, if you want peace and quiet in your life, pursue blamelessness. you want peace and quiet, pursue righteousness. This is something... I fear the church has departed a bit from in, in its embrace of culture, and that is the fact that we are called to be righteous and blameless and holy. We're called to be a holy people, set apart and separate unto God. And that doesn't mean we're self-righteous. doesn't mean we walk around going, we are holier than thou. It means we're pursuing the very blamelessness of God with your hearts toward God, but in that pursuit, understand, blamelessness equals peace. We could say the converse, simpleness equals stress. And we stressed out, freaked out, upset, loud, noisy, confused in your life, sin big. And that will be the result. But if you want peace and quiet, pursue blamelessness like Abraham did. Or like the Hebrew pastor says in Hebrews 12, verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Righteousness equals peace. Blamelessness equals quiet. But back to the charges and the commands of Abraham, like I said, God said, go forth, be you a blessing, walk about the land, be blameless, He also said in Genesis 17, verse 19, Sarah will bear you a son. There's a command. Why is that a command? Because Abraham would have to go into his barren wife and lie with her for this to be fulfilled. God would say it also in Sarah's hearing so that she would understand when Abraham's coming in to lie with her that she'd better get on board, so to speak, Can we cut that from the video? (laughs) It was, in essence, a command of God. I'm gonna open her womb. I'm going to give Abraham a fruitfulness at the age of of 100 that he shouldn't have. But you two are gonna have to come together and do what married couples do to fulfill my promise. So in essence, it was a command kept by both Abraham and Sarah. An implicit command, but a command nonetheless. And then, of course, of all the charges, commandments, statutes, and laws that God set before Abraham, and if you're hearing these, you're thinking, these don't seem like laws. No, following Jesus is never like a law. Doing as God says is never burdensome, like some rule book. But he's telling Abraham to do these things, and perhaps the toughest charge of all Came in Genesis 22, verse 2: Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So yes, Abraham had certain charges, commandments, statutes, and laws. But again, we're not talking about religious restriction. We're not talking about this heavy weight, this 613 law rule book that God would provide in the law of Moses, which you Bible students know is for one reason that the law was added so sin would increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that people could understand through God's work with Israel that if you wanna try and keep perfect law, you can't do it. The law that God would rather we keep, the one that that is keepable by faith in Jesus and trusting in Jesus is the greatest commandment to love. As Jesus said, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, "'You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart "'and with all your soul and with all your mind.'" This is the great and foremost commandment. I love that, it's a command to love. Oh, we better get with it. Sounds a little heavy. Gotta love, oh no, gotta keep the love. It's love, man, just love. Then Jesus says, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is easy, as long as pride doesn't get in the way, as long as self doesn't get in the way. Loving other people, loving God, that's it. Jesus said on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. By the way, Jesus also said something else. He said, the father loves the son, John five, verse 20. And shows him all things that he himself is doing. So, to keep the charges and the commandments and the statutes and the laws of God is actually quite simple. It's just to be like father, like son, or like father, like daughter. But Isaac, unfortunately, is like his dad in some other ways. Verse six So, Isaac lived in Gerar. Again, where is Gerar? It's right on the border border town to Egypt, and you could say at this point in Isaac's life, he is living life on the edge. He's not in Egypt, he didn't go down to Egypt, but he's living as close to Egypt as possible, and that's what a lot of us do. A lot of us Christians, we live as close to the edge as we can. Oh, I'm not sinning. No, you built your house right next door. I'm not going down to Egypt. No, but you sure look Egyptian. (laughs) We get chummy with the world. We live right out at the edge. We emulate the culture over the Christ. One of the things I was asked by teenagers more than anything else in my years of youth ministry, it was the number one question, as far as memory serves, of all the questions I was ever asked by teenagers How far is too far? They always wanted to know. When we'd be talking about physical relationships and affection in a dating relationship, how far is too far? How far can I go? Why do you wanna know that? Because they wanna set up camp as close to the edge as possible. I wanna know how far because I'm gonna go there. Right up to the edge and that's living life in Gerar. That is what Isaac is doing. He's right here on the border town of the world rather than back up in Hebron in fellowship with God, right there at God's heart. By the way, if you look at a map of Israel, look at Hebron. Hebron is right there at the heart of Israel, right there in the middle of the country, of the land that God promised to the people. Go go to the heart, be as close to God as possible, rather than how far is too far, how close is close enough? Can I get closer to Jesus? See, that's a great question. I was never asked that one time. (laughs) Hey, Pastor Rick, yeah? How close is too close? See, there's no such thing. You can never get too close to Jesus. You just keep getting closer and closer and closer, drawing near to him. But I remind you what the other Jacob said, Jacob, the brother of Jesus, who we sometimes call James, chapter four, verse four, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? The closer we get to the edge, the closer we get to Gerar, to Egypt, the more hostile we become toward things related to Jesus. And it's true. The more I'm embracing sin, the more uncomfortable I am with church people, Christianity, the Bible, prayer, interaction with God of any kind. It's it's a spiritual law. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, and Isaac is right on the edge. Watch what happens, verse seven. So when the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Like father, like son. He was afraid to say that she's my wife, thinking the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca, for she is beautiful. Well, that's just great. Kind of makes me wonder, why didn't Isaac or Jacob or Abraham marry an ugly girl? I mean, that would have solved the problem. Can we cut that from the... (laughs) Like father, like son, Rebecca was Isaac's second cousin, so related, yes, but not his sister. Think about that. See how this works? See, when Abraham went down to Egypt, he says, she's my sister. And then, when Abraham was here in the same place, in Gerar, in Philistine territory, he said, She's my sister. And we find out the second time that Abraham lies about Sarah, we find out she is, in fact, his half sister. So he's not really lying. Yeah, he is. There's no such thing as a half lie. It's a lie or it's the truth. A lie is a lie. So we see Abraham bending the truth, she is my sister, but I know that's a wrong implication. And now, what do we see? Isaac is all in. And that's what happens. And I say this to parents, I say this to students, I say this to grandparents, this is what takes place in our lives. That the parent sends just so far, but kicks open the door for the child to then send further. We always do that. We tend to expand. The sins of the father, when emulated by the son, are expanded by the son. We go further. I mean, hey, Isaac saw his dad do it. Dad lied. Why not? That's a good idea. That's a good strategy, and he picks it up from his father and takes it to the next level. Verse eight, it came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah, in a way that was not the way you would caress a sister. Let's just put it like that. I like the King James translation. It says Isaac was sporting his wife. What, are they playing tennis? (laughs) He's caressing her. The, The word in the Hebrew, the best way we could translate it would be PDA. Public display of affection. Isaac is being affectionate toward Rebekah in a way that a brother would not be affectionate toward his sister, and Abimelech looks out and sees this, and verse nine, Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she certainly is your wife. How then did you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said I might die on account of her. Isn't that what husbands are supposed to do? Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That a husband should die for his wife. At minimum should be about self-sacrifice, where his wife is involved, about giving ourselves up. I, man, this stopped me cold because I thought about this. Is my love for my wife self-sacrificial? <laughs> Not always. Not when there are dishes to be put away. But it puts things in perspective. When you read husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, well, we know the extent to which Christ loved the church, the full extent that nailed him to the cross. How many of us husbands are willing to love our wives like that? Oh, I would do it. Yeah, then vacuum the house, bro. (laughs) It's easy to say I'll be magnificent in self-sacrifice until the little opportunities for self-sacrifice present themselves, and then I gotta work in the garage. I got other things I gotta do. Isaac said, I might die on her account. Exactly. Am I willing to lose that she might gain? See, that's the right attitude of a husband. By the way, that will will go a long way in saving a marriage in distress. And I say this to my brothers. If we are willing to be the self-sacrificial husband and put our wives first, and meet them where they are and love them as they are and do for them just as we would like for them to do for us, am I willing to lose that she might gain? That, by the way, is not weakness. That is strength, gentlemen, in a marriage. Peter said in 1 Peter 3, verse seven, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, Now, I know that sounds chauvinistic, but it is not chauvinistic because he's saying, treat her like you would treat fine china. Treat her like you would treat something precious, something breakable, deal with her tenderly and lovingly and carefully. As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and then he goes on to say, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Fellow heir, yeah, equal with you before Jesus. So that, I love this, your prayers will not be hindered. Any of you guys ever tried praying when you were in a fight with your wife? It's not easy to do. Because the moment you address the father, when there's you know this going on, dear Lord, I know I gotta okay, I'll be back in a minute. So that your prayers will not be hindered. It's very interesting to me because here's Isaac and he's really not honoring his wife, he's dishonoring his wife by lying about her to protect his own hide, and you know what we find in Gerar? Isaac doesn't appear to talk with God at all while he's living on the edge. God stops him, reaffirms the covenant, and the rest of the story, until he heads back north, he doesn't talk to God, at least not in the biblical text. Prayer is hindered, living on the edge of Egypt. Verse 10, Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, well, they were Philistines, so yeah, that's, I guess, what they would do, would have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Why is Ahem or Abim, why is this king so freaked out? First of all, understand this is not the same Abimelech that Abraham dealt with. This is probably his son or the next in line, because Abimelech, as we talked about before, is a title, not a name. It means father king. This is the new father king of the Philistine city state of Gerar, and so he now knows about the prior encounter with Isaac's dad Abraham. The prior encounter where he took Sarah in, the prior Abimelech took her in, and suddenly everybody was barren, including the king, impotent, he thought he was so impotent. (laughs) Yeah, can we cut that out of the... So this Abimelech knows, He, he knows what's happened from before. What I'm saying here is that the memory is still there that the family reputation precedes Isaac into Gerar. Listen, if there's a generational sin that has been passed on from grandparents to parents, now to you, you have a choice. In the name of Jesus, undo it. In the name of Jesus, don't emulate it, extricate it. In this generation, You do not have to continue the sins of the father, the sins of the mother. You don't have to keep it rolling. you be the one to break the cycle. you be the one to step out of the merry-go-round of dysfunction and say no to that sin. I will now live for Jesus and by Jesus in the name of Jesus, by the spirit of Jesus. And that's how you do it, by the way. You don't emulate, you extricate, Generational sin, family sin, by the power of the Spirit of God in the name of Christ Jesus. That is a power that nothing else offers. That with the presence of the Spirit in your life, you can stop the progression of the generations of sin. We live in a culture that says, well, but, but Dad was an alcoholic, so, so what? Stop. The ongoing sin. God visits every successive generation. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation. Are you gonna do what they did? Or are you gonna trust me? Are you gonna continue this old pattern? Or are you gonna step out with me and trust in me? See, here Isaac is just following the pattern. He's doing the same old thing and the reputation has gone before him. Stop. Psychiatrist, Dr. Spitzer, came into the room. Woman came in. Dr. Spitzer was highly uh, uh, spoken of by others. You need to go see Dr. Spitzer, so he comes in. And he says, I charge $5 for the first five minutes, and then absolutely nothing after that. Okay, Dr. Spitzer is Bob Newhart, and you can watch this on YouTube, it's absolutely hilarious. Bob Newhart comes walking in as the psychiatrist, and the woman comes in and he says, I charge $5 for the first five minutes. And she goes, oh, that sounds great. And he goes, and I won't charge any more after that. In fact, we probably won't even make it the full five minutes. Wonderful, she says. Yeah, I can guarantee our session won't last five minutes. So she tells him she has a debilitating fear of being buried alive in a box. He says, Has anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box? And she said, no, but thinking about it makes my life horrible. I can't go through tunnels. I can't be in a house, anything boxy. (laughs) So you're saying you're claustrophobic, he says. Yes. He says, all right, I'm gonna say two words to you right now. Listen very carefully, take them out of the office with you and incorporate them into your life. And she goes, oh, should I write this down? And he goes, Well, you can, but they're just two words. Most people don't have trouble remembering them. Just two words. Are you ready? Here they are. Stop it! (laughs) Just stop it! She's, stop stop it. Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. Stop it. Just stop it. It's not Yiddish. It's English. Stop it. And she says, but I can't. I mean, since childhood, no, 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 we don't go there. <laughs> we don't go there, just stop. And She looks at him, she says, okay, uh, just stop, you're saying just, yeah, stop it, <laughs> okay? He goes, well, that's, that's it, uh, you still have three minutes. Um, she goes, well, all I have is a five, and he goes, well, I don't take change. She says, well, I'd like to use the final three minutes. So she goes, I have bulimia. I I stick my fingers in my, stop it, he says. (laughs) And everything she says, he just yells in her face, stop it. And I watched that, Rachel sent it to me the other day, and I was just cracking up, and I was thinking, wouldn't wouldn't that be nice? Todd, they come in, they pay the five bucks, stop it, and off they go, healed, clean, done. (laughs) Everything's good. Wouldn't it be great if that worked? You know what? It doesn't work. Because we can't just stop it. Generational sins are among the most powerful in our lives. That which has been handed down dysfunctionally from father to father to father to mother to mother to mother and all the children and we pick up this stuff and we we can't stop it and so it goes on. It's like this massive juggernaut in humanity. Generational sins and addictions, so powerful, we can't stop it. But Jesus can. Jesus can. Which is why I say to you tonight, in the name of Jesus, stop it. How does that work? You invite him into it. Jesus, I got this, this sin impulse that has been shown to me and walked out before me and I wanna go there because that's where my father's fathers went. In the name of Jesus Christ, help me stop it. Give it to him. Walk it out before him. Call him into it. Invite him in. Because there's something that happens. This is, not, this is not psychology that just would say, just change the behavior and you'll be fine. No. This is inviting the creator of the universe by the power of his spirit in you to stop the sin. You know what that requires of you, of me? Faith. I trust him. I'm gonna trust him. I'm gonna repeat it to him again and again. I'm gonna invite him into the moment that the impulse is there. Jesus, Lord Jesus, take power over this. Just stop it in the name of Jesus. Exodus 34 again, verse six. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in grace and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, literally of generations, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And there's the power of forgiveness. When I'm forgiven of a sin, it no longer has hold of me. God's already taken it. So stop it in the name of Jesus. There is amazing potency in his forgiveness that cleans us out, it makes room for him to abide, and where God abides, God blesses. Well, verse 12, now Isaac sowed in that land, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich, and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that, note this, the Philistines envied him. Before we talk about the envy, understand this, God is gracious. God is a giving father. God loves to bless, desires to bless his children. What he asks of you and asks of me is just to ask him. You wanna be blessed? Ask. It is the blessing of the Lord, the Bible says, that makes truly rich. The Lord wants to bless his children, but you know what, there's a greater point, and this is where the prosperity gospel folks get off track. They stop there oh, just ask for blessing. I'll name it and claim it. I'll call down all the blessings of heaven and I'll just keep asking. I'll keep getting blessed and I want a house so I'm gonna pray for a house and he's gonna give me a house. <laughs> blessing. Wait, see, you're missing the point. Jesus made it clear. Luke eleven ten. everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, it will be open. Now suppose One of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? See, the giving of gifts, as far as God is concerned, is not about making us rich. It's about filling us with his presence. That's the wealth. That's The blessing, that's what he calls on us to ask. But listen, know this, understand. If you do this, if you seek and you knock and you ask and you pursue God and his spirit within you, if you receive his blessings and if you receive of his spirit, the world in its envy will try to stop it up. Look at verse 15. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines, stopped up by filling them with earth. Isn't that stupid? That's just so stupid. You come across a well. Hey, that belonged to Abraham. Quick, fill it up. Why not use it? (laughs) We were talking about this earlier today. It's kind of like what Hamas did in the Gaza Strip. When Israel pulled out, you guys remember that? Several years back, Israel fully pulls out of the Gaza Strip and leaves it 100% to the Palestinians. What did they do? They trashed everything Israeli. They burned down every house, destroyed every synagogue, wiped out anything that the Jewish people left behind. It's like you're shooting yourselves in the foot. You could have moved into nice homes. You could have taken over lovely neighborhoods. No, they just destroyed it all. And that's exactly what's going on here. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, verse 16, for you're too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar, and he settled there, or he dwelt there. This is an old strategy of Satan and of the world. And that is, to if he can't beat you, he will try to stop up spiritual blessing. If he he can't get you to join his side, he's gonna try and make you miserable on yours. He's gonna try and undermine anything that the Lord offers to you, anything good in your life. He's gonna try and come after it. He's gonna try and put dirt in your well. Well, verse 18 continuing, then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. I love the response. Someone fills up your well, just dig again. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. By the way, side note, that happens in Israel. The names in Israel today are the same names they were 4,000 years ago. It's amazing to me. I've told you this before. I love driving down a street and seeing one of those you know, new modern street signs that says, Tel Sheva. You know, Beersheba, Hebron, Yerushalayim. You see these and you think, wow, they still call it that. And so Isaac did that. He just called the same wells by the same names that his father had given, and it just continues on. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley, verse 19, and found there a well of flowing water that is spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, the water is ours. So he named the well Essek, because they contended with him. And then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it too, so he named it Sitna, and he moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth, For he said, at last, the Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. I call this section well, well, well. <laughs> Three wells are named here. The first is called Essek, which means contention, because that's what happened. The second one they named Sitna, which means strife, or enmity, or adversarial. By the way, Sitna shares the same Hebrew root word as the name Satan, the adversary, the contender, the one who brings strife and enmity. And then the third well, the well that he moves away and and digs this one and they don't hassle him over this one, he names that one Rehoboth, which means a broad and open place, broad place. Roominess, what we might even call the well elbow room. Room to breathe. I like that because the Old Testament often speaks of peace in terms of open space. You know, lots of lots of level places or unwalled villages. Pieces where you've got room to just spread out and relax, like the psalmist writes, listen to this, Psalm 26, by the way, great psalm, it's one worth just kind of reading through this week, especially if you've had a tough time, especially if you've had a tough time trying to live for Jesus and you're taking flack for that, listen to this, David writes, Psalm 26, verse one, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me, test my mind and my heart, For your loving kindness is before my eyes and I have walked in your truth. Note that, your loving kindness is grace. I have walked in your truth. Grace and truth come by Jesus Christ, right? He goes on and says, I I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence. I will go about your altar, O Lord that I may proclaim with the day of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul away with sinners, nor my life with the men of bloodshed in whose hands is a wicked scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. No, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me And then he says, my foot stands on a level place. In the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. The level place, the roomy place, stability. No hassles, just a place of peace. So what do you do when the world comes at you, tries to stop up your blessings by drawing you into contention and strife? I'll give you three suggestions. Number one. Just give them what you got. Give them what you got. If someone demands what is yours, let them have it. I mean, let them have what's, don't don't let them have it. If someone says, no, that's mine. Okay, all right. Hey, you took that from, okay. Don't fight over it, it's just stuff. Give them what you got. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 5, verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat. (laughs) I've never done that in my life. I like my coat. It's my coat. Why would I give you my coat? Jesus said to. (laughs) Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Just be generous. Give it away. You've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why would I do these things? So I can look like dad, like father, like son. So I can be like my heavenly father. There's such freedom when we stop holding on tight to our stuff. I've had many friends over the years, one of them is my own wife, who has taught me this, don't hold so tight, just share it if someone wants it, let them use it, give it away, it's not a big deal, let go of it. I remember years ago, I think I've shared this before, but, but when Jeff D'Angelo first opened up Papa Murphy's in Anacortes and I would go in there And I'd order a pizza and he'd put it out on the counter and and I'd go to pull out my credit card to pay for it and he'd go, no, it's good. What? No, just take it, it's good. What are you doing? I gotta pay you. And he goes, it's okay, it's not my pizza anyway. Now, if you've gone into Pop Murphy's, you paid for it, I'm sorry. (laughs) But we used to have this thing that we would say all the time. We said it many times in the early days of this church fellowship. It's not our money, it's God's not my stuff, it's his. He just let me borrow it. The home that I have, I don't own that. By the way, the bank doesn't own it either. God does, it's his. My car, that's his. You wanna borrow it? It's out there, I'll give you the keys. I need to get home tonight, but you can have the car. It's his. If we don't hold tight to our stuff, there's amazing freedom because Dad's got it covered. What happens here is they say, the well is ours, and Isaac goes, okay. He moves over here and digs a new well. (laughs) that well's ours too. Okay, he moves over here and digs a new well. Not a problem. You want it? Give him what you got. By the way, that doesn't mean you just roll over. It just means you're generous. It just means we don't hold tight to our stuff. But the point is this, Romans twelve eighteen. such a valuable verse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. People are gonna contend, people are gonna strive, people are gonna come after you, people are gonna try and draw you into disagreement. Hey, that's their problem. As far as it depends on you, you be at peace. Just give them what you got. Secondly, keep digging wells. Keep digging wells. Eventually, you're gonna reach Rehoboth. Eventually, you'll get to the level place, the open place. Just keep building. keep digging wells. It doesn't matter how often the world piles on or plugs up or tries to fill up your well, just keep digging because you have a secret that Jesus made a great reality. John 4 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So the, the world and Satan can throw all the dirt they want to in that, but the well just keeps coming up. Just keep digging. John 7, 37, if anyone's thirsty, Jesus said, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You just can't stop up the spirit of God. So give him what you got. Keep digging wells. And number three, come back to the place of covenant. Verse 23. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. Now he's headed the right direction. Isaac's going back home. He went up to Beersheba, and note this, the Lord appeared to him the same night, and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Just keep digging. Just keep digging. Just keep digging. Dig the well because the Lord will provide the water. And the Lord here, he repeats the covenant again for the second time to Isaac. So we have two visitations of God to Isaac in his entire life that we see, both in this chapter. But note this, where is Isaac when God finally speaks again? He's back up at Beersheba. He's back up in the land of his sojourn, he's not living out on the edge with strife and contention where he didn't hear from God. Sure, the Lord blessed him, the Lord stopped him from going into Egypt, but now, it's not until now that he comes back that God, that same night, the Bible says, I find that interesting, the same night that he arrives back in Beersheba, God appears. The Lord is there. It's that simple in our lives. In fact, that's really the key. You can give them what you got and they're just gonna keep taking more. You can keep digging and digging and digging the wells, but ultimately, come back to the place of the covenant. Come back to the place of the covenant. Come back to the place of trusting God, of trusting his promises, his provision, his salvation. Another way to put it, Paul said in Colossians 2, verse six, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. One of my favorite verses, and very intriguing to me. As you received Christ, walk, and walk with him. What does that mean? Well, how did you receive Christ? What was it like when you received Christ Jesus as Lord? When you first gave your life to Jesus, do you remember? The night, the day, the afternoon that you say, yes, Lord, I believe in you. Do you remember how you felt? Do you remember where your heart was? Do that. Go back there. Return to that place, or as Jesus said to Ephesus Remember your first love. When you really fell in love with Jesus, when your heart was all for him, when nothing else, in that moment, and I remember vividly, in that moment, nothing else mattered, just him. As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in him. Come back to the covenant. Paul says, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, come back to the covenant, verse 26. So Isaac's now up there, he's back in the land, he's at Beersheba. And Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzat and Pekol, the commander of his army. Ahuzat means possession. Pekol means strength. So you could say, here comes Abimelech with possession and power to make peace with Isaac. He shows up because he he wants to make a little treaty here. He must have feared being on the wrong side of this divinely blessed man. Verse 27, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? What's this about? Abimelech with possession and power? And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. See, the world knows it. The Philistines know who the blessed of the Lord are. They may not know how to get there, they may not understand faith, they may even reject and rebel and fill up your wells and try to drive you away, but they know if you're blessed of the Lord, people can see the difference. So they come to him, and it's amazing to me what Isaac does here. Let me just ask before we look at it: What would you do? I know what I'd do: Get out of my tent, Pikachu, and at you and a bimahoo. You got get out of my tent. Isaac, blessed of the Lord, is so gracious. Verse 30, he made them a feast. And they ate and they drank. And in the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. And it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. Spirit's just flowing when we're making peace God loves that. And so he called it Sheba. Sheba means oath. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And it's a wordplay there, a little Hebrew wordplay. Isaac comes back to the place of covenant, comes back to Beersheba. It's already been called Beersheba. Abraham called it that. So Isaac comes back. But now they say, well, hey, we found water at this place where we made the oath. The oath means Sheba, so we call it oath. Well, wait a minute. It was Wasn't it already called Beersheba? Well, there are two words in the Hebrew. There's Sheva, which means seven. And you may recall that the covenant that Abraham made with Abimelech was over seven lambs. He gave him seven lambs and said, this is my guarantee to you that we have peace, that I'll keep my oath. And it was there at Beersheba, seven. But Sheba means oath. So whether you call it Beersheba or Beersheba, Either way works and both are just a word play and that's where the name Beersheba comes from and I'm hoping in uh, about three or four weeks to take some people down to Beersheba and there's a well there I think I mentioned before that is Abraham's well from 4,000 years ago. Cool. As we close out the chapter, I want you to remember That while Isaac and Rebekah are in this sojourn and we see Isaac doing some of the same things as his father, good and bad. We see him following the family pattern, good and bad, like father, like son. Remember what's going on here. It's not just Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob and Esau are there. They are sojourning with their father and their mother. They are among the tents. They are moving as Isaac moves. They're seeing what Isaac is doing their understanding and learning from Isaac, their dad, and Esau, Esau's there. We're gonna get back to Esau on Sunday morning, but the chapter actually ends with Esau. Remember that Esau despised the birthright, sold it for a mess of pottage, that red lentil soup. That's, that's the value of the birthright to Esau, but he keeps on despising the birthright and will continue to despise his birthright. Verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beer the Hittite, and Basmot, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. I am not going to ask for a show of hands. <laughs> for those of you whose kids in law have brought grief. Not a new thing. It happens. Thankfully, my daughter has not brought me grief in marrying my son-in-law. Shout out to you, uh, uh, Josiah. (laughs) No, Esau does this. He marries these two Hittite girls, Udit and Basmat, whose names mean praise and spice, the Hittite girls. You got praise Hittite and spice Hittite, and I'm sure there are other Hittites. They are the daughters of Het. Remember the sons of Het? Abraham bought the the cave of Machpelah from the sons of the Hittites. And now these two girls, Esau goes and marries them, and two girls, not just one, because one's not enough, because he's the flesh. He's flesh. And when one woman is good, two women is better, because that's the flesh, right? So he goes out and he does this, and he marries them, and they grieve Isaac and Rebekah, but I want you to note this. If if your Bible doesn't say this specifically, and maybe it says it in your margin, says that they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Literally, they were a bitterness of spirit, or they brought a bitter spirit. The word in the Hebrew there, bitterness, morat, and spirit, ruach. They brought a morat, ruach. And that is what the flesh ultimately will do. It's what the flesh always does. It breathes bitterness. It causes bitterness, and that's what Esau brought his parents. If you look over at chapter 27, verse 46, the next chapter over, the last verse, Rebecca said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Chet, her daughters-in-law, these two women. I'm tired of them. She says, we gotta send Jacob to take a wife. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Chet like these, from the daughters of this land, what good will my life be to me? Rebecca, is miserable because of the bitterness that comes of Esau's marriage to these girls. If you look down in chapter 28, verses eight and nine, so Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac, you think? In verse nine, and Esau went to Ishmael and married. So besides the wives that he had, Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaoth, and we'll talk about it when we get there, but Esau, the flesh, is thinking, Well, if if two wrongs don't make a right, maybe a third wrong will make it even more right wrong. Right. I don't he's he's the flesh. He just keeps doing the same thing and it just keeps making the problem worse and worse. Did he think it'd make it better by marrying his cousin? And I'm pointing this out, and it's interesting that it's at the end of this chapter because we have some choices that we can make. As we come down the family line, we have all got choices. We can inhale and exhale out a bitter spirit, a morat ruach, or by the spirit of the living God, we can breathe in new life and breathe out blessings. Bitterness or blessings. We can take along the sins of our fathers or we can take after our heavenly father, as Jesus said, Matthew five forty-eight, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus should know. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, like father, like son. Father, we thank you for this brief sojourn with Isaac to see these things, to see this man making choices, decisions. We see him following his father, Abraham, good and bad. We see him learning from his failures, just as his father, Abraham, did. But thankfully, Lord, we see in Isaac a man who returns to covenant. I pray that we would do this. Lord, tonight, that, that we would consider where we stand. We would consider, Lord, the sins of our fathers and mothers as well as the blessings that they brought. And Father, I pray that we would take hold of your spirit, that we would take hold of your covenant, that we would keep digging wells because, Lord, we know, we know that your spirit has been promised to flow in our lives. I guess, Lord, if there's one practical thing I draw out of this is that we would be like you, that we would be seen as sons of our Father, who is in heaven, that we would be peacemakers. As you, Lord Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Help us to look like you, to act like you, to think like you. And Lord, when we we are caught up in the generational sins, help us to turn to you. We pray, just like you stopped Isaac at the border of Egypt, would you stop us when those old patterns arise, would you set us free and break us from the sin that so easily entangles that's been passed along generation after generation? And Father, I pray for children, my children, the children of those represented here. Lord, if we have passed along sin behaviors, We ask, Lord, tonight, now, that you would break the power of that over our children. They might be set free. And we would no longer be bound to the things of our past and our generations, but rather, Lord, we would be set free, sojourners in this world, by the spirit of the living God within us. I pray, Lord, for forgiveness. I ask for redemption. I pray for reclamation and blamelessness In the name of Jesus Christ, help us take hold of your promises, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.